The tallest bridge in the world is the Mio Viaduct in southern France. It's among the greatest engineering achievements in the world. It's over 1,100 feet high, higher than the Eiffel Tower and above the clouds sometimes. It's over a mile and a half long. And this uh, impressive bridge was designed by English architect Norman Foster and French structural engineer Michel Villejoux. And likely none of us have, have driven across the Mio Viaduct, but we've all uh, probably driven across the Chickies Creek Bridge in Mannheim by the tennis courts, if you know where I'm at. Uh, it's no Mio Viaduct, but it is helpful and I'm glad that it's there. So let's say that one day the Chickies Creek Bridge collapses. And let's also say that Foster and Villejoux offer to rebuild it for Mannheim. How kind of them. Uh, to do so. And is there any doubt at all that they will be able to design and build a solid and secure bridge to span the 30 feet of Chickies Creek? No. No, there's absolutely no doubt. Since they engineered the Mio Viaduct, Chickies Creek is no problem for them at all. If we carefully consider who Foster and Villageux are and their skill, creativity, reputation, and all their past successful engineering projects, we will be confident about the Chickies Creek Bridge project being successful. When people do extraordinary work, people like Da Vinci, Shakespeare, Tesla, Einstein, Bieber, it, it, it tells us something uh, about them. Their achievements tell us who they are and what they're capable of. My simple point today is this. The miracles of Jesus assure you that Jesus is the Christ who compassionately cares for your body and soul and has authority to forgive your sins. Apart from being astonishing, the achievements of Jesus tell us who he is and what he is capable of doing for us. I want to start with this preliminary point uh, to get us headed in the right direction. True comfort for your soul comes from true faith and assurance in Jesus Christ. Well, we talk a lot about comfort at Jerusalem Church. What is comfort? When you're distressed, depressed, or sad, being comforted is to experience relief from your distress, depression, or sadness, to be cheered up, refreshed, invigorated, to be comforted is to be calmed, quieted, encouraged. When a child falls and skins their knee or they become afraid of something, they run to their mother for comfort. In their tears and fears, they climb onto her lap and her warm embrace and soothing words calm their spirits. Her kiss on their boo-boo doesn't actually heal, but it gives them comfort nonetheless. From where does comfort for your soul come? Well, in the case of the tearful and fearful child, comfort comes from their awareness of their security in the arms of their loving mother. They trust their mother, have confidence in their mother, love their mother, are close to their mother, and that trust, confidence, love, and closeness lead to their comfort. Their mother's sweet coddling helps dry their tears and alleviate their fears, and they, they confidently bound off to play once again. Who their mother is for them and how she responds to them actually comforts them. 
in the case of comfort for our souls, we need to recognize that true comfort comes from true faith and assurance in Jesus Christ. In other words, when you trust Christ, have confidence in Christ, love Christ, are close to Christ, are tenderly cared for by Christ, who he is and what he does for you is your comfort. I said in my main point that the miracles of Jesus assure you. What do I mean by assure you? I mean that the miracles of Jesus give you proof, give you certainty regarding who Jesus is and what he can do for you, which becomes comfort for your soul. So let's look at another miracle of Jesus and trust the Holy Spirit to use this miracle to assure us that Jesus is the Christ who compassionately cares for our bodies and souls and has authority to forgive us our sins. My first three points are, number one, Jesus is the Christ. Number two, Jesus compassionately cares for body and soul. And number three, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. So those First three points address who Jesus is, what he is capable of, and what he does for us. The fourth point is this. Number four, there are only two ways to respond to the identity and authority of Jesus. Condemning unbelief or saving faith. Point four addresses the the two different ways that people respond to Jesus. And hopefully this last point encourages you to trust Jesus all the more so that you find greater comfort for your soul. So number one, Jesus is the Christ. Christ means anointed one. Christ is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah. Matthew set out from the beginning of his gospel to show us that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew opens his book with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Later, Matthew said that Jesus was born of Mary and was called Christ. The title Christ appears many times in Matthew. And Matthew goes to great lengths to show us that Jesus is indeed the Christ. As Matthew recounts the knowledge of and power, and authority, and achievements of Jesus throughout his gospel, he is, in effect, telling us who Jesus is and what he is able to do for us. In verse 1, Jesus gets into a boat and crosses from the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to the city of Capernaum on the western shore, which was Jesus' home base. It's likely that verse 1 This is a little tricky to think through. It's likely that verse 1 goes with back with chapter 8, verse 46, and that uh, chapter 9, verses 2 through 9, actually happened before the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, helpful here to remember that Matthew wrote thematically, not always chronologically. And Mark and Luke, in reading their gospel accounts, help us better piece together the chronology of these events. So Jesus was in his own city, Capernaum, and the word got out. And in verse 2, people brought to him a paralytic. Matthew once again uses behold to alert us to the significance of this. Mark and Luke, they add helpful details here. People were jamming into this house, and, and it was overflowing outside. Jesus preached the word to them, and no one was getting through the door. Four men were carrying a paralytic, and they believed that if they got to Jesus, 
He could heal their friend from paralysis. He could do something. They, they had to find a way to get to him. The, the normal route wouldn't work. So they climbed onto the roof of the house. They shifted some roof tiles, made an opening, and lowered their paralyzed friend into the presence of Jesus. Folks, that's determination. That's great faith. And Jesus sees the faith of the five men, the four carrying the paralytic and the paralytic himself, and says to the paralytic, verse 2, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, more on that later, but for now, Jesus assumed the authority to forgive sins because he is the Christ. He is the Christ. He said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The, the term Son of Man, as we saw a few weeks ago, is a messianic title from Daniel 9. In Daniel 9, it was to the Son of Man that dominion, glory, and a kingdom were given in whom the peoples, nations, and languages serve. The kingdom of the Son of Man is everlasting and will never be destroyed. So healing the paralytic was in part Jesus' confirmation that he is God's promised Messiah or Christ. Jesus gave ample evidence to prove it. In their hearts, the scribes and even Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy because with divine authority, Jesus declared a man's sins forgiven. And they didn't think he had divine authority. In verse 6, in order to substantiate his divine authority, Jesus told the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And I love the simplicity of verse 17, or verse 7 rather. And he rose and went home. Jesus healed the paralytic. That's astonishing. That should blow our minds. What does that miracle tell us? Well, it tells us a lot. One thing it tells us is that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ. Matthew has been establishing the identity of Jesus as the Christ from the beginning of his gospel by recounting the authority of Jesus' teaching and the authority of Jesus' achievements all as evidence of Jesus' identity as the Christ. After the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records that Jesus healed a leper, healed a centurion slave, healed Peter's mother-in-law, healed demon-oppressed and sick people, calmed a raging tempest on the Sea of Galilee, and healed two demon-oppressed men in the country of the Gadarenes. Those events are significant because they attest to the identity of Jesus as the Christ. Before heading to number two, remember where I started. True faith and assurance lead to true comfort for your soul. When you know who Jesus truly is, and what he is capable of, and that he possesses the authority to help you where you are, you will have comfort for your soul in receiving Jesus as the Christ. I might have to amp it up here, folks. Is that PP&L checking the power lines? That is so loud. All right. Number two. Jesus compassionately cares for body and soul. 
Jesus compassionately cares for body and soul. We would be remiss to overlook the compassion of Jesus in these verses. Jesus is so compassionate. He cares about our bodies. He cares about our souls. He cares about our complete redemption and restoration. And these verses prove it. They give us another taste of who the king is and what his kingdom is like. Verse 2 says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, why would people go to the trouble of moving a paralyzed man to Jesus? That, that's an ordeal. See, the people knew of Jesus' power to heal. Word had gotten out. But I think they at least recognized his willingness to heal, his compassion. These five men believed in the compassion of Jesus that he would extend them compassion if, if they could just reach him. And I assume that they were thinking something to the effect of, guys, we've got to get him to Jesus because Jesus is compassionate. He will help us. Jesus is our only hope of healing. So we must do whatever is necessary to get him to Jesus. Hey, the roof is an option. I think that might, that might work. We might be able to pull this off. Listen to the compassion of Jesus' words. Verse 2, Jesus said to the paralytic who had been lowered through the roof, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Interestingly, that didn't actually solve his physical problem. But it did solve his spiritual problem of sin, guilt, and misery. As pressing as the paralytic's physical disability was, Jesus knew of his greater disability, began with his greater disability, his sinfulness and his guilt. Jesus began with the man's soul, granting him comfort for his soul in the forgiveness of sins, which is the greater comfort. And only after addressing his spiritual condition did Jesus address the man's physical condition. Jesus said to him, take heart, my son. What a, what a tender way for the master to address a young man and to give him true comfort. I presume the man was younger than Jesus, but definitely lesser than Jesus and needed his comfort, needed to be comforted. Jesus heartened him to be of good cheer. And what was going to cheer him? What was going to comfort him? Your sins are forgiven. That was enough. If Jesus stopped there, he gave unfathomable and eternal compassion and comfort to this man. To be forgiven by God, to be pardoned, to be justified, and therefore accepted and loved by God is immense compassion and comfort for sin-afflicted people. More than paralysis, the man had significant moral failures. He failed to adhere to God's law. Guilt weighed more heavily upon him than his paralysis. Jesus cared first and foremost for the man's soul. And of course he did. He came to save his people from their sins. The angel was unmistakable. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Take heart, my son. 
Your sins are forgiven. Jesus knew that the forgiveness of sins, removal of guilt, and cancellation of debt brought immense cheer to the soul. There is no questioning the compassion of our Lord. He, he continues today to fulfill the purpose for which he came and died to forgive and save his people from their sins and the devastating effects of sin. Jesus was doing Psalm 103 verses 11 and 12 for the paralytic. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That day, Jesus authoritatively removed the sin and guilt of that paralytic. And the man was forever justified. Jesus was doing Micah 7 verse 19 for the paralytic. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It was the compassion of Jesus in the forgiveness of sins that was leading this hurting man into good cheer for his soul. But Jesus also had compassion for the man's body. Pain and suffering in our lives and in the lives of, of people that we love can dishearten us. Isn't that true? Just dishearten us. And they can seem to suggest that Jesus doesn't care about our bodies. We can begin to think that if Jesus doesn't prevent bodily harm or physically heal when we want him to, that he doesn't really care about us, that he's forgotten about us, that he's distant from us. Physical pain has a way of threatening confidence in Christ. But if we are confident about our security in Christ, assured of the compassion of Christ, then even if he never physically heals us in this life, even if our suffering is great in this life, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our God, our Lord, our Christ has forgiven our sins, removed our guilt, paid our debt, and promised to redeem our body and soul completely on the last day. But how do we know that he will? How can we trust him? Verses 6 and 7. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Does this historic event, corroborated by many eyewitnesses, leave us any doubt whatsoever that Jesus will care for us body and soul as we trust him? Is there any doubt? As you live, Jesus is tenderly caring for your body, providing for it, sustaining you. Think of all that is going on right now for you to be alive, and Jesus is doing it. He's caring for your body very tenderly through his means of grace. He's caring for your soul right now as we speak through his means of grace strengthening you up in the gospel so that you can 
do what? So that you can live joyfully in the comfort of your Christ right now and forever. Will everyone be healed of paralysis in this life? No. Cancer? No. All physical suffering? No. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. We have to remember that even while Jesus was on earth, he did not heal everyone on earth. But when Jesus said, rise, pick up your bed and go home, and the man rose and went home, that's telling us something significant. It tells us Jesus is the Christ who compassionately cares for your body and soul. This one miracle on its own confirms that Jesus cares for all of you, will bring redemption and restoration to all of you. Body and soul. Is there, is there any greater comfort than God declaring with his divine authority that your sins are forgiven and your guilt is gone? If God says it, what reason do you have to doubt it? On his way home, the healed paralytic had two major comforts. One, my sins are forgiven and I am right with God today and forever. Because the Christ has pardoned me. And two, I am walking home. Brothers and sisters, life is hard. And if you're anything like me, you often look for comfort in earthly things. A spouse, children, a peaceful home, a secure job and income, good health, low conflict with others, praise from others, things like that. And those are wonderful things to find comfort in. I'm not saying don't find comfort in those things. They're wonderful things. However, it's tempting to try to find utmost comfort in those things. To hear rise and go home was wonderful on that day. It changed the man's life. But the greater comfort came in hearing your sins are forgiven. That was the greater blessing. And, and I just want to ask, does that make sense to you? It, is that true for you? Or are you still looking for the comforts of this world or some physical blessing somehow? Uh, a comfortable life is not what true and lasting comfort is all about. Being forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Christ is the greater comfort and joy. But that's very, very hard for us to comprehend and for that gospel truth to actually translate into practical comfort when life is hard. Isn't that right? We struggle to make the connection there. We want so badly to be comfortable now that, that we often forget or diminish the comfort and joy of being forgiven by God now and forever. We want so badly for physical pain to be removed now. But oh, the comfort of our guilt being removed now and forever. When God's forgiveness is our utmost comfort, we will lean hard on God's grace for every day. And we will simply approach the circumstances of life with much greater humility, um, patience, kindness, forgiveness, 
generosity and love because our soul rests secure in the forgiveness, compassion, mercy, grace, and love of Christ. Johnny Erickson Tata, she's actually one of my heroes, has been a, a quadriplegic and endured chronic pain for 53 years. I just cannot imagine that. In 2010, Johnny was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. A mastectomy and chemotherapy followed. In 2015, she was cancer free. In 2018, the cancer returned. And I, and I want you to hear how Johnny responded to her second cancer diagnosis. Johnny said this, when I received the unexpected news of cancer from my oncological surgeon, I relaxed and smiled, knowing that my sovereign God loves me dearly and holds me tightly in his hands. What good is it if we only trust the Lord when we understand his ways? That only guarantees a life filled with doubts. And then she added, Jesus is ecstasy beyond compare. And if new hardships draw us closer to him, I'm more than content with it. What makes Johnny talk that way? Well, my guess is that for Johnny, the most important words are, take heart, my child, your sins are forgiven. Johnny knows that, that since that is true, the complete healing and restoration of her body will come on the last day in time. Additionally, Jesus showed compassion to the scribes, Pharisees, and crowds by doing this incredible thing right in front of their eyes, right under their noses. They heard, they saw, grace worked right in front of them. Dear friends, trust that Jesus is the Christ who compassionately cares for your body and soul and has the authority to forgive your sins. Brothers and sisters, since, not if, since your sins are forgiven and your guilt removed, who or what can separate you from the love and compassion of Christ? And is that not deep comfort for your soul? Number three, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. This is what the passage is about, folks. Jesus saw the faith of the men and said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the priests could declare people's sins forgiven, but not on their own authority, nor detached from the temple and write sacrifices. Here, Jesus declares the man's sins forgiven with his own authority. And one source noted, simply declaring a person's sins forgiven would not have meant one was blaspheming. Priests did it regularly, but making such a declaration while bypassing the temple authorities and the biblical requirements for animal sacrifices was something only God could do, end of quote. And Jesus said it so confidently, he said it as if he possessed the authority to grant it. Only God could grant it. Exactly. 
Now verse 3 says, and behold, there's that word again, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So they were not okay with Jesus acting as God because they did not believe Jesus is God. One source said, the scribes believed Jesus was dishonoring God by taking upon himself the prerogative to forgive sins, which only God can do, end of quote. Now let me define the word prerogative. A prerogative is an exclusive right or privilege. If, if everyone has the right or privilege, then it's not a prerogative. Webster's 1828 says this, a royal prerogative is that special preeminence which a king has over all other persons and out of the course of the common law in right of his regal dignity. It consists in the possession of certain rights which the king may exercise to the exclusion of all participation of his subjects. For when a right or privilege is held in common with the subject, it ceases to be a prerogative. End of quote. So forgiveness of sin and guilt is God's prerogative. God alone possesses the special preeminence to grant pardon from his broken law. No one else has the authority to pronounce sins forgiven. That's what made the scribes and Pharisees so upset because Jesus was doing what only God can do. Luke tells us that the scribes and Pharisees question, who can forgive sins but God alone? They knew exactly what Jesus was doing, but they couldn't accept it. They accused him of blasphemy because they couldn't accept him. Jesus knew their inner thoughts. He said to them in verse 4, why do you think evil in your hearts? See, the real blasphemy was in their hearts, not his. They saw a man but failed to see a God-man. Their accusation was blasphemy. In, in verse 5, Jesus asked a very good question, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Well, think about that. It's much easier to say that your sins are forgiven because you can't see that happening. You can't verify that sins were forgiven in a tangible outward way. It's much more difficult to say to a paralytic, rise and walk, because that would be easily and immediately verified. He's either getting up or he's not. Does the guy actually get up and walk out or not? If, if someone says rise and walk and the guy's like, you know, he's trying to get up and he just stays there, he can't get up. Well, that immediately discredits the supposed healer. But if the guy actually gets up and if he walks, it immediately authenticates the healer. So you know which one is easier to say. Both are unbelievably difficult to do, impossible for us. So consider this illustration to, to kind of firm up the point here I'm trying to make. If Jesus said that he would rise spiritually from the dead, how could he verify that in any way? But when Jesus said that he'd rise bodily from the dead, and then he did and allowed people to see him, touch him, talk with him, his miracle was legitimized in a temporal way, in a, in a tangible, touchable way. So this here is a critical moment in history. This is a dramatic event, almost as if there's a little like, what's going to happen here? And, and Jesus has just put it out there and suggested that he can tell a paralytic to rise and go home and the paralytic will. So if he pulls it off, 
it confirms that he has the authority to say what he did, the authority to actually forgive sins and remove guilt. Folks, Jesus pulled it off. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus heals the man in front of them. What does that event say? What are we supposed to glean from this? It says that Jesus is the Christ who compassionately cares for body and soul and indeed does have the authority to forgive sins. And not just in a generic, distant way, folks, but he has the authority to forgive you your sins, to remove your guilt to justify you before the righteousness of God. What was the purpose of this miracle? John Calvin said, Christ intended to confirm and seal that authority by a visible sign, end of quote. In other words, proof, proof, so that you may know, so that you may be certain, so that you may be assured that your sins are truly and fully now and forever forgiven. Jesus healed the paralytic. As sure as that paralytic rose from the mat and went home, saints, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. You are reconciled to God through faith and will delight in his presence forever, now and forever. That is comfort for your souls. But we really struggle with this, though. We are tempted to feel so guilty about what we have done. Some of you look back on your life, you can't let it go because you just know how, how terrible you were. What you did to hurt other people, what you did to lie, cheat, and steal, what you did to kill, harm, and destroy. And, and it's so hard to let that go. You feel so guilty about your sins that you try to make up for them yourselves. You, 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 we may hold on to our guilt and inflict self-punishment as a form of self-justifying penance. We may try to do a bunch of good works to make up for our sin and guilt. We may try to minimize the seriousness of our sin and guilt and maximize our goodness or good intentions so we don't feel so bad about the burden of our guilt. We excuse and we self-justify. We may do a bunch of different things to try to rid ourselves of this heavy burden of our sin and of our guilt. And folks, none of these efforts will actually produce rest and relief for the soul. None, but rather anxiety, insecurity, pride, despair, exhaustion. But if we know, brothers and sisters, deep within our hearts, that apart from anything we have done or could do, and only by grace through faith, Christ Jesus has authoritatively declared us forgiven now and forever, a liberating comfort will come to our souls to give us calm, rest, and relief in his pardoning grace. If it's up to you to pay off your sin debt, to carry the load of your guilt, to satisfy and please God with your goodness, you will never have comfort. Because you will never succeed and you will constantly feel it. 
But when you receive Christ by grace through faith, you receive the forgiveness of sins. Because as Jesus later said in Matthew 26, verse 28, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Beloved saints, since you believe that Jesus rose that man to his feet, how could you not also believe that Jesus has forgiven you of your sins and then draw deep comfort from that reality? You know who he is. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the promised serpent-slaying seed, Son, Savior, and Sovereign, the prophet, priest, and king sent to you to do what? To save you from your sins. Is there any doubt at all that your sins are forgiven? Any doubt at all that your guilt has been removed only because of grace for the sake of Christ's merits? What reason do you have to doubt that reality, dear brothers and sisters? When you believe this gospel, it makes a difference in how you approach every single circumstance of your life. Number four, there are only two ways to respond to the identity and authority of Jesus. Condemning unbelief or saving faith. First, condemning unbelief. Look at how the scribes and Pharisees responded to Jesus. In this text accusation, and then silence. In many other places, complete and damning unbelief. Their hearts were evil, skeptical, doubtful, obstinate, and faithless. They opposed Jesus at every turn. The crowd was actually similar. And this, this you might not sense immediately from the text. You really have to look closely at it. They were afraid, amazed, astonished. They glorified God. That sounds great. But they glorified God in a particular strange way. Verse 8, who had given such authority to men. What's wrong with that? Jesus was still just a man to the crowd, a human possessing and deploying the authority of God, but not the God-man and Christ possessing and deploying his own divine authority. For the crowd, Jesus was man, not God-man, and that's unbelief. Their glorification of God was empty and insufficient. Well, then there's their saving faith. Not perfect faith, saving faith. Verse 2 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, their faith includes the paralytic, otherwise Jesus never would have pronounced his sins forgiven. They didn't just believe Jesus could do it. They received Jesus himself by faith. They received him as the Christ. And there's another reason Jesus could pronounce forgiveness here. Jesus knew, supernaturally he could tell, Jesus knew that the paralytic's faith, and I think the faith of the other four men, was real saving faith. Therefore, Jesus said with confidence, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. True faith is the instrument through which Jesus grants the grace of forgiveness. The second way to respond to Jesus' miracles, to his identity and authority, is true saving faith. Saving faith is confidence, is assurance or certainty that because Jesus has authority to heal a paralytic, he also has authority to grant you the forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and eternal life out of mere grace and apart from anything that you have done or could do. 
True faith is something that the Holy Spirit works in your heart. And when you have it, you have it because God gives it. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess that we believe the forgiveness of sins. Do you? That means when you confess that, if it's sincere, that as a Christian, you believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, remembers your sins no more, nor your sinful nature. Yes, you will struggle against your sinful nature your entire life, but on the authority of Jesus Christ, God will grant to you the righteousness of Christ that you may never, ever, 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 ever come into condemnation. And right there is the true comfort for your soul. There it is. That, that's what comforts you in life and in death. Jesus performed many miracles. And those miracles assure you that Jesus is the Christ who compassionately cares for your body and soul and has authority to forgive your sins. Friends, after this is all done, I want you to rise, go home, and enjoy the forgiveness of your sins on this fine Lord's Day.